I used to stand up here and see all the smiling faces. Well, some smiling faces. <laughs> oh, been a blessing to be here. It is most interesting to go through First Peter and to go step by step and go into areas where the book takes us. And like I said, I think I think last time it, it actually takes me to places I don't normally choose to go. And this morning it ch- takes me to a place I don't normally go. <laughs> last message was titled, Government is God's Idea. And this morning the topic is about indentured servants and slaves. And... Employees. <laughs> Thank you, John. And how those individual, individuals in that situation should function as followers of the Lord Jesus. So, if you would with me, let's turn to First Peter chapter 2. And we'll read the entire passage that we'll be going over, and then we'll go through different parts of it. Uh, I should probably mention that this message actually has two parts. Uh, the title is Slavery and Serving as Victors, Not Victims. Slavery serving and Serving as Victors, Not Victims. And the message has two parts to it. First part is actually describe about slavery in the Bible a little bit, some context and why it's there and some of those things. But to make it practical for us today, we're also going to the area where we live at today, which is uh, serving under some kind of authority uh, in the vocational area. So let's read... 1 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if, when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye take it patiently? But if, when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who, when he reviled, reviled not again, when he suffered, he threatened not. But committed himself to him that judges righteously, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness. By whose stripes ye were healed, for ye were as sheep going astray, but now are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. I would... Uh, since I'm going through the book, I'm, I'm always thinking of the context because I'm very familiar with it. But it's, it's always good to know that when you come to a portion of Scripture that you actually understand the context in which it flows out of. And, of course, uh, we are in the portion of the passage where, as you would go back earlier in chapter 2, it talks about who we are. We're that chosen generation, that royal priesthood. We're the people of God. And then... He shifts into how we should function, how we should live, how God's people should live honest, upright lives among the Gentiles, which means the general public. And then he goes in how we should live upright and righteous lives, honest lives under the government. And now he is saying how we should live that kind of lives if you are under uh, slaves and uh, masters in uh, that kind of environment. <clears throat> in the context of vocation, the entire area of 
contracts and deals and bosses and commissions and that kind of thing that we're dealing with this morning. But to be true to the scripture, we're not actually just talking about employees and employers because we are talking, according to the scripture, about servants and slaves. And he says, as a slave, conduct yourself in this way. Now, what Peter is telling us is completely consistent with what Paul says. And I'm going to read short clips of four different areas where Paul says the same thing, just to get context. And you don't have to turn there. Ephesians 6, 5. Paul is talking here. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in singleness of your heart as unto Christ. Colossians 3.22, servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. 1 Timothy 6.1, this is, um, Tim, Paul is telling Timothy to tell the, tell the people under him, let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. And the last one, Titus 2.9, exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters and to please them well in all things, not answering again. Now that brings a dilemma because we think slaves, slaves isn't that evil. Slavery. Does the Bible condone the evil of slavery? It doesn't outright condemn it, right? Like adultery or murder. Now, if you claim the Bible is such a good book, it has such good morality that it's the word of God, how could it miss such an important fundamental issue, we would say, um, a massively important issue of slavery. How could it miss it? If it, my Bible's a good book on morals, or it's a good book all around, it's the word of God. How could it miss it? <laughs> Have you ever had a skeptic challenge you about slavery? Depending where you go, you will actually have that challenge come your way. I don't can't remember that I ever had it particularly in that area myself, but I know it it does happen. But here's a maybe more question. Have you ever looked at these verses that we read and and wondered? What about those abolitionists in the South in the eighteen hundreds? What about them? Were they actually on God's side or not? Do you ever wonder that? Those who, who, who worked against the institution of slavery, those who helped them escape, those who hid them from their masters, were they for or against the scriptures we just read? I had those thoughts and wondering, and I wondered what would I have done if I would have lived during that time? Question. I, I mean, it'd be interesting to see what, what you would say, what we would say about that. In the Bible, we actually even see believing masters who apparently owned slaves. I like Philemon and others that are referenced to by Paul. So how can slavery even be tolerated by anyone, let alone these men? Maybe it's time we tear down the statutes of the apostles. Not that we put any up, but there's some up somewhere, I'm sure. So that's one of the things we want to do with the first part of the of the message, is look and and it is, this this treatment of slavery is going to be way, 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 way too short. I could take an entire message, but I decided that, well, if we just treat that, then we won't have to get practical to where we live. So I'm going to shorten it. 
But uh, one of the reasons we we look at slavery the way we do is we look at history through modern eyes, and we interpret Scripture often based on the situation experience that we we know about more present. And our experience that we have is the American South, the slavery that went on 150, 200 years ago. And and we read the lens, we read, we see that, we read the scripture through the, the Bible through those lens. Now there is a difference between the New World slavery, which is the slavery in the West, which is the slavery that came to the Western Hemisphere, and the slavery that we see actually in uh, in the Jewish nation, the Old Testament, where God actually gives regulation for the slaves. There is a difference. Uh, New World slavery was racial. It was if you were a black, you were considered a slave, and it was fueled by one illegal um, process called kidnapping. Runaway slaves could be killed or returned to their masters for punishment, and beatings and rape was commonplace in some situations. Families were separated. It was a forced slavery Slaves had no right and no appeal. Now, you have that in mind, and you read in the Old Testament about slavery, and we're talking about Old Testament now, you'll, you'll see that you would think that the Bible condones something wicked. And, uh, and we come up with a judgment that's incorrect. So um, let, let me let me start here. Is slavery is actually a human institution that probably is as old as civilization itself. Basically, probably in history, pretty well all civilizations had some form of slavery. It was actually a a part of the social structure, and slavery definitely existed. Just think of Joseph. He was sold as a slave into Egypt. As a, like an animal, he was sold on the market. And then later on, we had the entire nation of the Israelites in slavery, forced labor, not allowed to go anywhere. They had to, they had their, it was slavery. And then, then the entire, then the, again, uh, then God delivers them out of slavery, and then God gives them some direction. And, and this is where I'm really shortening it up, but I'm going to give the give sort of the overview. At Mount Sinai, He gives the nation regulation concerning slavery or servanthood. And Exodus, one of the first ones He gives in Exodus 21:16. He that stealeth a man and selleth him, if he be found in his hand, or if he be found in his hand, he shall surely be put to death. So, rule number one for you Israelites. Kidnapping is a capital punishment. You absolutely do not do it. Slavery in the West could never have happened if that one Bible commandment would have been followed. The entire institution on the West depended on kidnapping and forced slavery. And if it was wrong to kidnap a man, then it was also just as wrong to purchase a kidnapped man. That's still true today. It's wrong to steal theft, but it's also wrong to accept stolen property. (laughs) That's illegal. So it was forbidden for the Israelite to force someone to be a slave, one of their own people. But was there actually slavery in the Old Testament? And there was actually. The most common form of slavery in the Old Testament was because of poverty. When someone became poor, 
instead of a welfare state, instead of uh, some kind of a food stamp program, whatever they had back then, they actually had a way. You could actually sell yourself to someone for food, for shelter, for clothing, so that you wouldn't starve. And there was there was contracts made, and I'm not sure about all that, but you could enter into some kind of a contract. And, of course, then we know that there's this specific amount of time, seven years for the Hebrew servant, and, and that was like an it was a contractual agreement. And it was, in, a, in one sense, it was voluntary. You could starve, or you could indenture yourself to someone and, and enter that contract. So it was a specific amount of time you would serve an owner for food and shelter and possibly some pay rather than starve in their poverty. But the law, and this is where we're not going to go through it, the law provided protection for such servants. Like if if a master abused a servant, like he damaged his eye, or what was the other one, um, the eye, the Tooth, tooth, that's what it was. If he knocked a tooth out, that servant could go free. In other words, whatever contract he had, and maybe there was some amount of money or whatever it was, the master loses because he abused. And it, it just uses two examples, the eye and the tooth. But if there was abuse going on, there's protection given for slaves, or servants in that way. And... Um, So the master loses the rest of the years of labor that he might have had. And there's another place in the Old Testament where if a slave ran away from his abusive master, that the others had to protect him. If a slave ran away and, 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 and others, he was around other people, they actually had to keep him and not return him to his master. If there was abuse going on, he was not returned. Now, I don't know how they all determined whether that was true or not, you know. And then if a, if a master or if a master's son married a servant girl, then she would have been elevated completely to family status. She was considered part of the family. And then every 50 years, all the slaves were released and everyone could go home to their land and everything was made equal. At least that was in the law. And compared to the cultures that were around them, there was no, there were no documents that gave protection to servants and slaves like the Israelites had. Now the Israelites also had slaves from outsiders and they didn't have the seven year thing. Some of them I think seemed to be permanent, but the same kind of protection from abuse was applied to them as it was to the to the Israelites. My grandmother was a servant. My great grandfather was poor, very poor. They were um, they have a history. I think they came from the Big Valley. They moved down to Maryland. And I don't know what happened down there, but they moved back from Maryland in a market wagon and they lived in that wagon for an undetermined amount of time in the corner of somebody's farm down in Lancaster County. They were homeless, my great-grandparents, for a time. And they had a large family. And my grandmother... For the sake of house and food and home, was hired out to another community in a home to be a servant girl. And I'm assuming, I don't know what for uh, apparatus they had, but she was away from home for an extended, I mean, I, I don't know what the visits were going home and so on like that, but it was for years. She was away from home. And that's where she met my grandfather in that youth group, and that's why I'm here today. But the point was, she was in that home 
the verses that we read here would apply to her. She was a servant girl in in that way. And now uh, many of our ancestors, I don't know who all of us, when they came from Europe, at least some of them were, um, they didn't have money for their passage. So they actually uh, became what they called indentured service. Somebody here would pay for their ticket to come to America and for an X amount of years, they would work for that person. That was a legal contract it's called indentured servanthood. Some of our ancestors did that. <clears throat> so when we're talking about how to how we should function in these situations, it actually isn't that far away from home, maybe. Now, sometimes this slavery in, in the Jewish time was actually involuntary. And we think of the time that this widow woman, her her husband was one of the prophets, but he died. And this woman was a widow, and she cried out to Elijah, or Elisha, Elisha probably, and said, help, the debtors are going to come. They're going to sell my children to pay off the debt. And that would, again, because of poverty. Um and then they had to then where where they got the uh, vessels and they filled them with oil and they sold it. You see, God cares about the poor. What God did in the law is He regulated the kind of relationships between people, and He was protecting the the weak and the poor and the powerless from the abuse of the rich and powerful. So the Old Testament has the most comprehensive protection rights of slavery of any ancient document. Uh, no other documents that is in existence give this kind of protection for slaves, and many of them didn't give any. So God's regulation gave protection and care for people while still allowing this kind of social human contracts, he allowed it. Rather than starve, I will sell myself for you for an X number of years for this amount of care or pay or something that I want in the case of the, uh, the fare to come to America. <clears throat> now, in the New Testament, it's, uh, the New Testament says servants to respect and obey your masters. And New Testament times, slavery did exist. But it was not a Hebrew institution. It was a Roman institution. It was what went on in Roman society. And it was part of that slavery that existed from the dawn of humanity. God did not give laws in the New Testament to regulate slavery. And the reason he didn't, he was not starting a nation and giving them laws. The, the purpose of the New Testament is, is, is different. So he didn't, he didn't, uh, he wasn't starting a new nation like he did in the Old Testament. So he didn't give laws governing slavery. What he did is he gave individual personal instruction to individual Christians how to function if they were in that situation. That's what he did. So advice was given to those who were slaves, how they were conduct themselves and why. But this is not an endorsement of slavery. I want you to understand this. For instance, we are Christians are given advice how to conduct ourselves when we are persecuted. Okay. Does God endorse persecution? Or does he tell us how to function when it happens? You see the connection there. He assumes a reality that is going to happen, that there's going to be a clash between the two kingdoms and there's persecution going to happen. 
And so the cultural reality was in the New Testament that people were slaves under Roman society, and, and that slavery continued on. <clears throat> now, slavery in the New Testament includes a large swath of situations. It's from outright slavery where you absolutely had no rights at all. And the master could do whatever he wanted to a slave with no consequences. That was the reality on the ground. To, uh, to voluntary, it was involuntary slavery, to voluntary slavery, to simply working for hire. It's a wide variety. But in any of these situations, there's a relationship between a superior and I'm going to call it inferior because I didn't know what further word to use. Not that always the slave is inferior to the master, especially morally. But there's a difference, there's a relationship. There's one in charge and there's one who obeys. There's one who exercises some kind of authority over a subject. And in those situations, there is the potential for the abuse of power. Because the weak are always at the mercy of the strong. God actually does condemn the American form of slavery in the New Testament. Turn to, here's one scripture I want you to turn to. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1, where he speaks about some very wicked people. Knowing this, uh, chapter 1, starting at verse 9, 9 and 10 here. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men-stealers, that's our word, and for liars and perjured persons, and it to be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. Men-stealers is kidnapping, and God says it's wicked. And in a country like America that was 90-plus percent professed Christian, Christian South, Christian North, Mostly Christian, the slavery that happened in our history is inexcusable because God explicitly forbids kidnapping and said it is very wicked. So to participate in that was ungodly for a Christian people to do. So there is no excuse the the american slavery institution was was corrupt from the inception no christian should have been involved in it in that kind of thing now there was other like the indentured servants you had the servanthood you had other forms of what we're talking about but that kind of slavery was was out of god's will completely for his people Still, the Bible, though, assumes relationships between the rich and the poor, between the the strong and the weak and the powerful and the powerless. Those who have a lot and those who have little, employers and employees, God assumes this relationship. And the entire utopian dream that some have in this country that envisions a time where there's going to be nobody rich and nobody poor, that we're all going to be equal, is it's unbiblical. <laughs> it's not going to happen. And there's reasons why it's not going to happen. We won't get into that. At least it, and it's, it's unbiblical and it's ungodly, at least in the way it is being pursued in this country, which is taking away from the rich and giving to the poor, which is in one sense punishing the productive and rewarding the inefficient. It's, a, it's, a, it's ungodly, and it, it actually will never occur in a fallen world. 
But God has a will for his people living in the real world, like my grandmother living in that home, like some of our ancestors as indentured servants, and like employees today. God has a will for us how to, how to live. And so since I want to make the word of God practical, I will speak in context of where we are today. If you have a job, or if you work at home for mom and dad, everyone beyond the age of five has a job or at least some chores to do. Wherever you are at the moment, God has instructions how to relate to those who are in charge of giving us work. And that's... The first part of what we read, servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the forward. And um, I'm going to I'm going to take Colossians three, twenty two to twenty five as um, a little bit of a text. We're going to go through there some. You don't have to turn there, but I'll just read a little longer portion of what I had. And then then we'll take some points out of there. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance. For ye serve the Lord Christ. But he that doeth wrong shall receive the wrong which he hath done, and there is no respect of persons. So the point number one here is your boss, and this is widely used now, your boss, whether it's your parents or your boss or anyone you work under, is boss over your flesh. He is not boss over your soul, and you need to make that distinction. You had no obligation to give your conscience to your boss. He does not control your relationship with God. Um, But he is boss over your flesh. And so while we say he's boss over your flesh, not over your soul, we come back and say, but he is boss over your flesh. So he can tell you what to do and when to do it and how to do it. And you, me, we are to do it with honor. But reserve your soul in the midst of that. Reserve your soul. Joseph, in the Old Testament, the best example of this, he served his master. But he reserved his soul. He would not violate it. So the point is true. He is boss over your flesh. So whatever you're called to do, do it heartily as if the Lord told you to do it. That's actually what it says. That's the principle. Whatever you're called to do by your boss, do it as Unto the Lord. That means, and I'm going to be practical, setting the table at home, doing the laundry, mowing the lawn, milking the cows, cleaning the garage, and you can put whatever you do at home. Do it as if you were doing it to the Lord. It's in the flesh. You're do, in the flesh, you're doing it for your boss or your parents or whatever, but in your heart, you're doing it to the Lord. Don't, and this is the point, don't ever do anything that's not unto the Lord. That would be a principle of life. I think, I think it might change my life <laughs> if everything I do would be as unto the Lord. Everything. Don't do anything. 
and make that an absolute principle of your life. And the question I want to ask you is how much time do you spend working? A huge amount of our time is spent in regular labor of life. And you're not doing it unto the Lord? What a waste of a huge chunk of your time, of your life, our lives. I should stop saying you because I need to say our. <laughs> and he goes on here, said, not with eye service. Now, eye service is, of course, when the boss can observe you, but then you slack off when your boss or your parents aren't watching you. And why shouldn't you do that? Well, the Lord, you're doing it to the Lord. He sees you all the time, right? So we will work as if our boss is looking all the time because he is. <laughs> he is looking all the time. And not as men pleasers. A man pleaser is a flatterer who tries to manipulate his boss for his own benefit. Don't do that. Do your job well whether you are noticed or not. Because an honorable person seeks to glorify Christ not with eye service and not with men pleasers. And with all fear. And that means to treat your boss as if he were your boss. Uh, their words matter. Respect them. Give them weight. Don't make jokes about your boss. Is that a principle for God's people? With all fear. Not in a sake of jokes about your boss, I should say in a demeaning way. <laughs> There's a right way to, we can all laugh about funny things that we do or people do, but we're talking about in a demeaning way. Don't do that. That's not, that's not God's way. And if they run the business wrong, that goes with them. They are accountable for that. Now, if if I have any say, if you have any say, say it. But if you don't, if you can't say it, it's actually not your responsibility. It's not your job. And, and then God calls us to honor them while they are running the business badly. Yeah. Maybe even into the ground. Basically, it means doing your part when they are not doing theirs. Now, submit to them when they are, and I'm going to use the vernacular. I hope no one's offended. What if they're a jerk? Still honor them. Now, that really goes against the flesh. And you better believe it, that if your boss is a jerk, and, let's see, how did it say? You will not feel like working well for him. Let's say it that way. That's the natural, that's the natural um, result of our flesh. When someone is acting like that, I do not feel like working for him. I'm just going to be like the, the latest trend that's going on. Um, they call it, um, have it written down somewhere, it's not quiet quitting. It's, did anybody know what that new term is that is trending right now? Is it quiet quitting? Maybe it is. Quiet quitting, quiet quitting. that is the term, okay. Where you just simply, okay, I don't care anymore. I'm just going to do a bare minimum to keep here. I'm not going to quit my job. I'm not going to resign, but I'm just going to quietly quit. You will feel like that. <clears throat> but that's the time you need to remember who you're working for. You're working for the Lord, not. That's what we had said, right? Do it as unto the Lord. You will know whether you're working for the Lord, 
that if your boss fails to do his part, you will know by your response whether you're really working for the Lord. That's how you can tell. In fact, it is interesting how God often brings things into our lives that we actually can (laughs) discover (laughs) what we're doing and where we're at. That often happens. Often happens. Two wrongs don't make it right. His wrong and now you're wrong. That doesn't make it a right. So, so then things aren't going well for your boss. You obey the Lord and you honor your boss and you do your work well. You do it to the best of your ability. And then things go south and your boss blames you for it. Now, that's the next point in the message here. Be, let's read here. Um, let me see. How you respond to this test is a real, to this, to this reality is a real test of our Christian character, of our humility and our submission to the Lord. What if the authority I am under causes me to suffer wrongfully? So, servants, be subject to your master with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well... And suffer for it, ye take it patiently. This is acceptable with God. Now, it's off, it's easy to say we're suffering wrongfully if we bring a lot of justification in with us to justify. In other words, um, We're not always as righteous as we think we are, (laughs) and we can bring a lot of justification with us. And so something goes wrong, or we get blamed for something, but we like to justify or excuse our own fault, and we like to magnify the other's fault. And then we can feel make ourselves feel like we're being persecuted. Because in our flesh, we have really great imaginations of of how to get ourselves off the hook. We can consider ourselves a victim quite easily when we aren't a victim. And that's human nature. So many times when it comes to this kind of thing, we can think, yes, okay, maybe I did a little wrong, but he did more wrong. Sometimes there are no good guys. Sometimes they did wrong, and sometimes I did wrong. And we're all bad guys. And in those cases, I'm not suffering wrongfully. I'm just suffering the consequences and maybe the consequences of the Lord's discipline. But we all like to be on the high moral ground, and therefore we like to magnify others' faults and minimize our own so that we can justify ourselves. And we hang all the fault on the other Maybe because of that one statement they made or whatever thing they did. But the question we need to ask is, did I do any wrong at all? And if I did, then I need to acknowledge that. But then we need to be aware of the other part as well. This phenomenon that they call gaslighting, where an abusive person manipulates a situation so that what we call the innocent person, feels like it is their fault, when in truth it isn't. It's as if Joseph's brother, now this didn't happen, but this does happen in, in life, but uh, let's imagine Joseph's brothers. They sold Joseph into slavery. Let's imagine the the power imbalance would not have occurred. By the time this was found out, Joseph was up here and they were they were his servants. But let's imagine that wouldn't have happened. And so they would have got caught. 
And they would say, Joseph, it's your fault because you had those arrogant dreams and you tattled on us. Therefore, it's your fault that we sold you into slavery. That's a form of gaslighting, putting the fault on someone else, what I did. That's that's wrong. Now, they didn't do that, but that, that's just an example of what could happen. No, it was wrong what you did. There is no excuse for it. So, so in, in these situations, we, we need to be aware if you're, if your boss or whatever, you get into trouble of some kind, accept responsibility of what you did, but maybe you didn't. Maybe there's gaslighting going on and you need to be aware of both sides of that. So, first off, you need to be suffering wrongfully. And God is that judge. And it's because of conscience towards God that I did this. And because I did it with conscience toward God, I am suffering wrongfully. <clears throat> and it's, it's actually important how we suffer wrongfully. But if when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently. This is acceptable with God. And that is the key. Patiently, you endure it. Patiently has the idea of enduring, and, and, and it, has, it has an element of faith in it. God will take care of it in time, and I don't need to. My wrath that I could come up with is not going to work the righteousness of God. So our call, oh, uh, I said it's going ahead of myself. Christ suffered wrongfully. But it says here he suffered wrongfully according to God's will. It was actually God's agenda that Jesus would suffer wrongfully at the hands of sinners. So we as believers, as Christ is our example, uh, maybe we need to understand it might be God's plan for us to suffer wrongfully under the hands of other people. Because God is not a health and wealth gospel God. If it was Jesus, God's plan that Jesus would suffer, it might be our plan. It might be our calling or our task or our job description to, to endure this grief and to endure it patiently. And to maintain in the middle of it our composure and our integrity and our character. We are called to endure. To continue in the path of honoring God when, when we are suffering wrongfully. Now it doesn't mean that we can be glad that it's happening or that we need to approve that it's happening or that it's good that it's happening. It doesn't mean that. But it does God does call us to respond in this particular way. For it is commendable if we take it with patience. And we're going to read a little bit more of that scripture. Like what Jesus did. For here unto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Now, we talk about following the steps of Jesus. It says we were called to follow in his steps, but he's talking about suffering wrongfully when he was doing right. That's the steps that we are called to follow. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. Now, one thing that he did when he was reviled. Okay, so we're, we're in the context. And uh, I'm trying to think now, okay, my grandmother in the, working in this home, uh, our ancestors in this indentured servants, or we working on the job. The three, or you can in a home. Now we heard about the home. This shouldn't happen in Christian homes. <laughs> but 
you are being reviled. You are being abused in some way, shape, or form. You're being abused. Jesus did not revile in return, and he did not retaliate, and he bore it patiently, and he prayed for them that the Father would forgive them. But my temptation is when I feel I am improperly treated is to revile, which is to use my mouth to rip them apart with my words, to expose them or to do other things like that. But if I do that, I'm not patiently taking it. And I won't be commended by God for doing that. The second is not to threaten. Jesus could have threatened them, but he didn't. And we could threaten also. If you do that, I am going to don't do that. Don't. Instead, Commit yourselves to him who judges righteously. Lord, it's in your hands. Instead of getting mad or upset, give it to the Lord in faith and in trust. Philemon was that, no, not Philemon, Onesimus was that escaped slave that was told by Paul to go back to his master. He hadn't. He had left his master. He had done wrongfully. And it was uncertain what was going to happen because he had run away. But it was God's purpose and call and will. And Paul encouraged him and helped him along with it. So if you have done something wrong, go back. Go back and make it right. That applies. That can apply in our job as well. When you've done wrong, go back and make it right. So if I suffer wrongfully in any capacity, either as a husband or as a wife or as a child or as a citizen, when we suffer wrongfully and you were truly in the right, that is commendable by God if we take it patiently. And then Christ suffered for us. He's using an example which should remove any sense of entitlement for us. And the entitlement that we often face is this. I don't deserve this. I deserve better. This is not right. Justice has to be served here. And all that emotion and that rage and anger rises up with those thoughts. But Christ, in his example, takes that entitlement away and he he takes it away with that anger and frustration. When we have entitlements and then we are, they are violated, then we become victims. And I want us to think of it that Christ was never a victim. He overcame evil with good. He responded to blessing with, uh, to cursing with blessing. He was not overcome ever with the evil when his spirit, and he never became a victim. Uh, As we go through, uh, if we go through the, if we go through First Peter, we'll actually get to more areas where. um, We'll talk more specifically about persecution in a general sense. But the thought is here. I am suffering because of someone else's sin. I am being whatever is happening in my life is because they are sinful. That's what happened to Christ. I am suffering because of their sins, and that is true. But then we need to remember that Jesus suffered for my sins and for your sins. 
And if we wish justice on those, if we wish justice on those who sin against us, and we want justice, then in the same breath we want justice on our sins, because they're connected. And Jesus did a whole lot more. He went beyond what we were called to do because he didn't just suffer for our sins, but he took our sins upon himself and he bore our sins. And that's the gospel. That's the gospel of the kingdom. And uh, the gospel of the kingdom is that Jesus, that people, the, the people of the kingdom follow their Lord in his example. Always forgiving, never entitled, never victims, always overcoming evil with good. That is the idealness of the kingdom of God. It's our calling. It's what we're called to as God's people, as strangers and pilgrims, as a holy nation. That's what Christ did, and that's what he calls us to follow. Now, the Christian life is not always a pretty, perfect picture. It just isn't a a life where you're always wealthy and healthy and where things go well. It, It just doesn't. But there are many blessings in the Christian life, but our calling can be difficult. Our calling is difficult. But what we want to remember, what we want to remember as God's people when we're in a difficult situation is that we are the closest to hell as what we'll ever get. And that the unbeliever, the unrepentant, they're the closest to heaven they'll ever get. It gives us perspective. So it's tough here. It's temporary. It won't last. Now, when it comes to your work, you can quit your job sometimes. Many times you can quit your job. But while you're there, we are called to have a spirit of honor and submission and obedience that is complete and full. And because if not working for our boss, we're working for this whatever vernacular you want to put in there, we're working for him in the flesh. But we are serving the Lord. And while we're there, we're still serving the Lord. There are appropriate times to appeal. I know that I, I, I emphasize to the full extent of what the scripture teaches in that. But there, there is places for appeal and there's definitely a place to appeal for injustice. But there's even a patience and endurance that comes with that appeal. Uh, Paul appealed to Caesar because he knew he wouldn't get a fair trial there in Jerusalem. But even in that middle of appeal, you don't see Paul angry and lashing out at those Jews. He cared about them. So he made an appeal. There was an injustice going on, and he took that appeal. But in the middle of it, he went through that with honor and composure and grace. That's what we're called to do. So there's appropriate times for appeal. Let's be done also with the victim mentality completely. Victim mentality, poor me, I'm suffering under someone who's doing wrong to me. You know, there is a huge number of martyrs that went to the stake, or went to their, they went to their death, counting it an honor to suffer for the Lord. They had a completely different attitude toward the suffering wrongfully that came to them unjustly, unjustly. They were suffering for Christ's sake. They were 
Listen, they were not, yeah, they were. <laughs> they were suffering at the hands of evil men. But they were suffering for Christ's sake. And again, you see that connection. Who were they living for? So let's be done. In the things that we face in life, let's be done with the victim mentality. Waiting on the Lord means actively walking in obedience while you are waiting for God to fulfill what he has promised. God has promised he will vindicate us in due time. But waiting on God does not mean just simply sitting back and waiting. It means actively walking in obedience while we are waiting for God to move. Now, actively walking in obedience can mean a number of different things. Understand that. But it does mean one thing. It means walking in obedience, (laughs) not outside that. So there can be appeals. There can be uh, various, various ways that you can think of. But not reviling, not um, threatening, and not a a number of things that we, we tend to do in the flesh. Like usual, the Bible assumes the wickedness of sinners and the fallenness of the world. There is going to be injustice. There's going to be suffering. But God's people are always called to live in a realm of righteousness, and they're called to participate in the redemption of humanity. That's our calling. And the last couple of verses, i actually not even going to get to who his own self bear our sins on his own body in a tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of our souls. The point I could bring out there, but I think it will come out later, later on in Peter. We should live unto righteousness. In other words, In in Peter, in chapter 4, it talks about he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. If we respond to suffering correctly, it actually helps us overcome the flesh in other areas of our life. Because there's a pattern there. So... And uh, that'll that'll come up in a, in a later message, so I won't deal on that here. I, I'm trying to trying to bring out what I'm thinking, but I think I heard someone say, "Sin never looked so unattractive when you're actually suffering righteously for the Lord. When you're actually like those like those martyrs that were going to the stake, let's say they're going they're they're going to their death. Do you think?" They were tempted with covetousness. Do you think they were tempted with immorality? They're, they're going to their death, and they have this, this spirit that they're suffering for the Lord. You see, when we suffer righteously, and when we suffer in patience, it actually flows out into many, many other areas of our life and deals with other sin issues. It's when we are actually not suffering patiently and when we actually are responding wrongfully that the opposite happens and other things go wrong because we're responding in the flesh and flesh seems to multiply. So, so anyhow, that's my thoughts this morning as we think about slaves and serving as victors and not victims. So if we could, could we kneel for prayer? Closing here. Lord, we thank you this morning that you knew, you know all things, and you planned and anticipated and gave us direction for whatever situations we find ourselves in. 
Lord, many of us may not even find ourselves in this situation, but in, in life in general, we all do. We all face what we talked about this morning. Thank you, Lord, for giving us direction. And Lord, as was prayed earlier and sung earlier, that your spirit would permeate this place and it would move and that it would deal and work and, and uh, affect our hearts. I pray, Lord, that you would affect our hearts in this area as well. Bless us as your people to be the example and to follow the steps of our Lord and Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.